Brian McClanahan Show, episode 409. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. Ten myths of American history, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses when you're enrolled in the academy. You also can buy one of the classes there. I've got a whole bunch of classes, so it's a great way to support the show. You get great educational content, and you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab while you're there. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can also get a book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. I've got several books. My recent, most recent is Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays in Defense of the Southern Tradition. It's a great book, so you can get the autograph on that. You can get the, an autograph on Forgotten uh, Conservatives in American History. You can get one on the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, or the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, or Nine Presidents Screwed Up America, or How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. All you got to do is buy one of those book plates, and you can do that. So purchase one of my books, get a book plate, get it autographed. Click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com and you can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woodsby Classroom. It's also a great way to support the show. And as always, share it around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. And send any show requests you have uh, through my uh, website. So I'd love to hear from you. may not respond back to you, but I do read your emails. And this is actually a listener-generated episode today. Uh, I was sent an article from the Smithsonian Magazine, an interesting article, one I don't necessarily agree with, but there's a lot here in this particular piece that I want to get into. It's not a long piece, but an interesting piece, and it's written by Colin Woodard. Colin Woodard is a leftist historian from Maine. Um, He's written a number of books on uh, American history. He's a journalist, really, by trade, but that makes him, I mean, he's a pretty good writer. I'll give him that. Uh, But he wrote this particular piece, The Pitfalls and Promise of America's Founding Myths. Now, this term myths is important. A myth. What is a myth? You hear this all the time, the lost cause myth, the founding myth, whatever it is. There are myths, and it's not saying it's a false story. A myth isn't a false story, necessarily. It's a story based on a shared tradition. An oral tradition doesn't mean it's wrong. We know that sometimes these oral traditions can have embellished parts of the story, but it doesn't mean they're wrong. And so a myth in and of itself is not a bad thing. You could have said the Romans had their own myths about the Republican period, or uh, the Greeks had theirs. I mean, is, is uh, is the Iliad a myth? Well, we know through archaeological work that there really was a city of Troy. And there there was a place, the 
Mycenaeans actually existed. So we know these people existed. We don't know if there was a man named Agamemnon. We know that uh, you know Achilles might have been a great warrior. wasn't the son of a god. But we do know that these people existed. Or at least this battle between the Hittites and the Greeks existed. We call the Hittites the Trojans. So we know it was there. This is a myth, though. And when you go back and look through American history, what, what uh, Woodard is getting into is that there are a lot of myths about America, what America really is, and uh, what these things actually mean. So the subtitle is Maintaining a Shared Sense of Nationhood has always been a struggle for a country defined not by organic ties, but by a commitment to a set of ideals. So from the beginning, Woodard is essentially accepting a proposition nation thesis for American history. The United States is a proposition nation based on a proposition. And he gets into that in this particular piece and what he thinks that proposition actually is. I will agree with him in this way. The United States has never had a shared nation, ever, even to this day. There's no American nation. It doesn't exist. It has to be manufactured, and that's part of the problem. When you look at the podcast I've done on Blue State Secession, when you look at all the things I've talked about with you know, the 10th Amendment, whatever it is, take your pick on Think Locally, Act Locally, Decentralization, whatever it is. The main core of that particular argument is that we don't have a nation in the United States in a traditional sense of the world. It has to be fabricated. And so what Woodard is saying here is that there's a way to do it. There's a way to fabricate this, this national myth. It is a myth, just as any other myth. It's a myth that Abraham Lincoln capitalized on. And this is when people like Don Livingston and others call it Lincolnian nationalism or the Lincolnian myth, because we never had the type of nation that Lincoln talked about in the Gettysburg Address. But what Woodard is going to do here is trace that back to a historian, a Puritan historian. And I've talked about how important the Puritans are. Look, I get into all this stuff in my McClanahan Academy courses, but... The Puritan myth, and I, and I even have mentioned this recently, when you look at American politics, you've got modern Puritans like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, their Puritanism is tied into politics. You have to be a purist in the ideology. But it's no less potent because what we're looking at here is a situation where you have an American national myth and it creates this entire structure of government that's never really existed. The Constitution was not created as a national government. It's clear because they said it, the ratifiers said it over and over and over again. So let's get into the piece. He says, Alexander Hamilton had no illusions about what would happen to Americans if the United States collapsed. It wasn't just Hamilton. There were many others in the founding generation talking about the prospect of disunion, in fact, it's what drove many of them to support the Union. If you take my originalist papers class, even the first part, I get into this with a number of these particular essays. And in this essay, he focuses on Federalist Number 8, which says this, right? And I cover Federalist Number 8 in that particular class as well. He says that the newly drafted Constitution wasn't ratified. He warned in Federalist Number 8, a war between the states fought by irregular armies across unfortified borders was imminent. Large states would overrun small states. 
plunder and devastation would march across the landscape, reducing the citizenry to a state of continual danger that would nourish authoritarian, militarized institutions. If we should be disunited and the integral parts should either remain separated or thrown together into two or three confederacies, we should be in a short course of time in the predicament of the continental powers of Europe, he continued. Our liberties would be a prey to the means of defending ourselves against the ambition and jealousy of each other. This is true. I mean, this is what Hamilton said in Federalist Number 8. He was trying to persuade people that disunion, which was certainly on the table in 1787, and certainly on the table many times after that. This is where people say, oh, the founding generation didn't believe in secession. Yes, they did. They talked about it all the time. They talked about breaking the union up all the time. This was something that was always on their mind. If the union did not support the liberties of the people, then it would be better to be out of the union than in the union. And more importantly, if it didn't support the liberties of the communities if they were being governed by somebody else, whether that government was a thousand miles away or more, or across the Atlantic Ocean, it wasn't necessary to be part of this union anymore. They wanted to be governed by the people that were close to them, people that were like them. Now, what Woodard is arguing here is that we don't need that. That's dangerous to Americans. He's setting this up at the beginning saying, we're on the precipice, we're on the cusp of having another situation like this in America again, and we don't need that. What we need is a good dose of Lincolnian nationalism, because that will save us. The only period of time we've had in American history where we had a good dose of Lincolnian nationalism, and it was actually a, a prosperous time, not just something that was um, full of violence and contested government, was right after World War II. That was it. That was it. And even that was... Uh, there was a lot of things under the surface that weren't necessarily in line with this Lincolnian nationalism. But, I mean, this is when you start seeing people fly the U.S. flag everywhere. you got to have a U.S. flag on your property and all these. World War II created, for a very brief amount of time, a type of unified America around a nationalist idea. But even Woodard is going to say this was, this was problematic because it wasn't inclusive. It was a certain section of America that was unified, but everyone else... Essentially, all of the races but white Americans were left out of the, of the prospect of a real American nation. And what he's saying now is that we need to rally around this idea of Lincolnian nationalism, but be more inclusive in it. That America is an ideal and everybody can kind of live in this ideal America and culture doesn't matter. What you're getting at here, what he's going to say is that the culture of an area doesn't matter. And I would say that's 150% false. There's a reason why the South is the South, and New England's New England, and the West is the West, and California is what it is, and the Midwest is what it is. There's a reason for all of this. There's a reason for it because political culture reflects the culture of the people, and all of that matters. These are things I used to not think about. I used to not think about culture. I used to not think about how that mattered, but it matters all the time. Hamilton's 1787 plea was successful, of course, and that Americans adopted a new, stronger constitution two years later. Well, they actually adopted it in 1788, but... And it wasn't Hamilton who was primarily responsible for this. It was other people. Hamilton's Federalist essays uh, barely made a dent in New York. So it was other people in other states that were persuading people to, uh, to support the Constitution. But they still didn't agree on why it was they'd come together and what defined them as a people. Well, of course they didn't, because there was no American people. 
As John Taylor of Caroline said, there was no having an American people or a people of America is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. Maintaining a shared sense of nationhood has always been a special challenge for the United States, arguably the world's first civic nation, defined not by organic ties, but by a shared commitment to a set of ideals. The U.S. came into being not as a nation, he's, he's right about this, but as a contractual agreement, a means to an end for 13 disparate rebel colonies facing a common enemy. And that particular contractual agreement carried forward even to the Constitution. In fact, as I argue in my American Constitutions course, it was the same union. The founding generation thought and argued it was the same union. It hadn't changed. It was still a contractual agreement. Look at Article 7 of the Constitution. It's a compact between the states are ratifying the same. His people lacked a shared history, religion, or ethnicity. 100% true. Even the, the people of New England and the people of Virginia were different. There's no shared history there. Yes, they were all English subjects at one point or another, but these were different people. That's why the states were there. These are states with a, uh, an 18th century understanding of the word, which meant a sovereign political entity. Not shires, counties, provinces, but states. They didn't speak a language uniquely their own. They didn't speak the same language. Look, if you go back and read David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seeds, and I get into this all the time in my McClanahan Academy courses again, but you go back and look at that. You've got a situation where you have New Englanders saying very different things than Southerners when it came to the words they used, the language they spoke. I mean, these were different people. And they recognized that when they all showed up in Philadelphia. Oh my gosh, look at these people. These people are different. New Englanders were shocked at the uh, displays of wealth coming out of the South. Most hadn't occupied the continent long enough to imagine it as their mystic, uh, I'm sorry, mythic homeland. They had no shared story of who they were and what their purpose was. In short, they had none of the foundations of a nation-state. That's because we didn't create one. But we did have that in the States. You had a shared history, culture, religion in places like Massachusetts, for example. Very cohesive in Massachusetts under the direction of the Puritans there. Same thing in Virginia or in South Carolina. Definitely a shared history, and a commitment to a people in those areas, or Pennsylvania, or New York. You had it all over the place. But not as a singular nation-state. We never, we've never had. We don't have the United States. We have the United States. The one unifying story Americans had them told themselves that they all participated in the shared struggle of the American Revolution. Loss of strength as the founder's generation passed from the scene and had been shaken by secession movements in the Appalachian backcountry of Pennsylvania and Virginia in the 1790s and in New England during the War of 1812. By the 1830s, it had become increasingly clear that the identity crisis could no longer be papered over. Americans knew they needed a story of United States nationhood if their experiment were to survive. Well, first of all, uh, the secession movements, so to speak, in this western part, the first people to really propose secession were New Englanders. He skips over some other New England secession movements even before that. It was Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King, two members of the founding generation, by the way, who uh, suggested to John Taylor of Caroline that we should just leave this thing. 
And it was the members of the founding generation who presented it the most. The Essex Junto were a bunch of members of the founding generation, the group that was leading the Hartford Convention during the War of 1812 in Massachusetts and Connecticut. These were people that were these were people that were members of the founding generation, many of them. So yes, you started getting into some myth-making in the 1830s, and he brings up George Bancroft. The first person to package and present such a national story for the United States was a historian statesman George Bancroft. Bancroft, the son of a famous Unitarian preacher in Massachusetts who graduated from Harvard in 1817 and was promptly sent by that college as president on an epic study abroad trip to the German Confederation, another federation of states contemplating its identity. In Europe, Bancroft studied under Arnold Heeren, George Hegel, and other intellectuals who were developing ideas of Germanic nationhood, chummed around with Lafayette, Washington Irving, Lord Byron, and Goethe, backpacked on foot from Paris to Rome, and returned home doctorate in hand with his head churning with ideas about his country's place in the world. After failing in bids to be a poet, professor, prep school master, and preacher, Bancroft embarked upon what would be proved to be his life's work, giving his young nation a history that would answer those great questions, who are we, where do we come from, and where are we going? Bancroft's vision, laid out over four decades in his massive 10-volume history of the United States, combined his Puritan intellectual birthright with his German mentor's notion that nations developed like organisms, following a plan that history had laid out for them. Americans, Bancroft argued, would implement the next stage of the progressive development of human liberty, equality, and freedom. This promise is open to people everywhere. The origin of the language we speak carries us to India. Our religion is from Palestine, Bancroft told the New York Historical Society in 1854. Of the hymns sung in our churches, some were first heard in Italy, some in the deserts of Arabia, some on the banks of the Euphrates. Our arts come from Greece, our jurisprudence from Rome. So he's saying, look, America's not Unique, we're a melting pot already. Look at all these melting things that came here. He's ignoring, of course, the Anglo-American tradition, the dominance of England. He's saying we don't have anything that's unique about us. We're English speakers, so you know we're just an extension of England. Well, in some ways he's right, but then he's saying all the other things we have, there's nothing new about this. There's nothing unique about this. And I want to go back to this point about the Germans. Yes, the Germans were thinking about centralization. That had started happening, and of course, German centralization was only accomplished by Bismarck's blood and iron, but there was certainly a talk about a German nation-state where all Germans, ethnic Germans, would get together, but there's no ethnic Americans. There's no, I mean, Bancroft is saying what we, we don't have, we have all this stuff. Essentially, the Germans were arguing another position. There's no ethnic America. Not in the way, not U.S. Americans. You could say there's ethnic Southerners, there's ethnic South Carolinians, there's ethnic Bay Staters, there's ethnic Mainers. I mean, these people exist. But is there an ethnic American? Bancroft's expansive notion of American identity had questionable aspects, too. He claimed that the founders were guided by God, that Americans were a chosen people destined to spread across the continent, that success was all but preordained, notions whose hubris and imperialist implications would become clear during his lifetime. Now, one thing I want to point out, too, is this Puritan intellectual birthright. The shining city upon a hill. That is one of the most important ideas in American history. Not correct, 
but important ideas because it's found its way into all kinds of things, most importantly in the neoconservative headlong rush into foreign adventurism. But also when you look at even the left, the progressives believe in this, that America, you know, Michelle Obama stands up and says, I'm for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. Why? Because they have a set of ideals that bang around in their little brains and America needs to fit to that. And if it doesn't, they're not happy with it. They're, these are the reformers. They're constantly looking for some type of new, innovative thing to throw on America. And this is the way it's going to be better. We're going to fix it till it's broken. But the core of it has remained with us to this day, a civic national vision that defined an American as one who devoted it to, as one devoted to the ideas set down in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, equality, liberty, self-government, natural rights of all people to these things. So here, here Woodard is essentially making the case for the proposition nation that neocons often talk about. And I think that's where we get into this unification between the left and the right on this particular issue, where you have neocons saying the same thing the left does. The left now is, I mean, they'll, they'll agree with this. This is a 1619 project. We had this, uh, this, this belief in the Declaration that only black Americans would be able to live up to. Nobody else could. And this is essentially what Woodard is saying here. But this is what the neocons say, too. They're one and the same. They're one and the same. The Declaration of Independence is not a proposition document. It's not a founding document in any, any way, shape, or form, except for the last paragraph, which establishes what the colonies are. They're independent states now, and that they're free and independent states. That's the only important part about the Declaration. All the other stuff is fluff. In fact, as uh, historians have pointed out, you can't even find examples of all the charges made against the crown. Jefferson levied against the crown. It's almost impossible to find them. So the declaration in that part of the document follows the form of the English Bill of Rights. It's an indictment of the king. It's not a founding document. It's, a, it's, a, it's an indictment of the king. And then you get to the meat in the last paragraph. If you take my declarations course at McClanahan Academy, I get into that. Bancroft's draft of our national myth was taken up and refined by Abraham Lincoln. In the Gettysburg Address, the president presented the myth, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, not as our destiny, but as an ideal that had not yet been achieved and if not fought for, could perish from the earth. Right, so this is ideal. Again, these are the idealists, the reformers, the proposition nation people. We just got to keep fighting for it. How long do we fight for it and when does it end? Does it end when critical race theory has taken over every educational establishment in America? Does it end when every dissident voice on the right is silenced? Is that when it ends? Or do then they have to, they have to consume themselves, which they will, because this person won't be leftist enough. This is what ultimately happens anytime you start going far left. This is the French Revolution. You have to kill the people who supported you, the Girondin. You have to kill them because they're too moderate. They're not radical enough. So blood has to be spilled in this way. Now, hopefully we'll never get to that again, ever, in history of the world, particularly in the United States. That's a nasty thing. But the left 
is the most violent political ideology and organization. I mean, if you just want to look at leftist groups organizing, they're the most violent thing in the history of, of Western civilization. The left are the violent ones all the time. It's no accident that the definitive copy of the address and one of Lincoln is one Lincoln hand wrote and sent to Bancroft, who months later was chosen by Congress to deliver the official eulogy for the assassinated president. One had influenced the other. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who like Bancroft had traveled to the White House and during the war to lobby Lincoln to take a stand for the Declaration's ideals, carried this civic nationalist torch through the dark days of the 1870s and 80s. It was a time when northern and southern whites agreed to put aside American commitments to human equality in favor of sectional unity, and when it meant tolerating death squads in the South and the effective nullification of the 14th and 15th Amendments. So here, here Woodard is essentially spouting a, 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 a anti-reconciliationist polemic. There's no good that came out of reconciliation. It's all bad because we put down human rights because we wanted to bind up the nation's wound, which is exactly what Lincoln said in his second inaugural address. With malice toward none, with traitor all, let us strive to bind up the nation's wounds. Well, if Lincoln had survived, we'd not have done the exact same thing. Lincoln told Alexander H. Stevens in 1865, before the war was over, we can put off emancipation. We can do it. We can put it off for... 20 years. In fact, if you come right back in the Union in January of 1865, you can vote the amendment down. <laughs> we don't need this. You can keep it. You can keep slavery in the South. So all you got to do is just come back. See, Lincoln was just concerned about putting the Union together. That's all he cared about. I want a home here not only for the Negro, the mulatto, and the Latin races, but I want the Asiatic to find a home here in the United States and feel at home here. Both for his sake and for ours, Douglas said in an 1869 speech, it summarized U.S. civic nationalism as well as anyone ever has. Well, I agree. I mean, it is a statement. That's a, a perfect statement of what the proposition nation is all about. And for a time, the Republican Party was certainly an open borders party. They were, they were much more interested in open immigration than the Democrats. And then that all changed in the late 19th century. We shall spread the network of our science and civilization over all who seek their shelter, and all shall here bow to the same law, speak the same language, support the same government, enjoy the same liberty, vibrate with the same national enthusiasm, and seek the same national ends. Douglas, who had escaped from slavery, was, unlike Bancroft, well aware that America had not yet implemented its ideas and it, that it was more that it was not at all inevitable that it would ever that it ever would. So that statement, let me go back to that. Douglas says this, We shall spread the network of our science and civilization over all who seek their shelter. This is a type of imperialism, though. They don't get to keep their language and their civic and their, their former nationalism. We are going to show them how to live these ways. Douglas, at the end of the day, was certainly interested in American nationalism. He wanted to be a participant in the American national experiment. And so in that way, he's a nationalist. That made his framing of the task and its stakes far more compelling, accurate, and ultimately inspirational than the bookish and often oblivious historians. But Bancroft's vision of American civic cohesion was not the only national narrative on offer from the 1830s onward, or even the strongest. 
From the moment Bancroft articulated his ideas, they met a vigorous challenge from the political and intellectual leaders of the Deep South and Chesapeake country, who had a narrow vision of who could be an American and what the Federation's purpose was to be. People weren't created equal, insisted William Gilmore Sims, the antebellum South's leading man of letters. The continent belonged to the superior Anglo-Saxon race, the, the superior people, which conquers, also educates the inferior, Sims proclaimed in 1837, and, and the reward for this good service is derived from the labor of the latter. Now, what's the difference between Sims saying that, though, and, and Douglas saying, we shall spread the network of our science and civilization over all who seek their shelter? And all shall here bow to the same law, speak the same language, support the same government. Speak the same language, support the government, enjoy the same liberty? What's the difference in Douglas saying that, which is a national imperialism, or Smith, Smith, uh, I'm sorry, Sims saying the superior people which conquers also educates the inferior? He's saying the same thing. But here's the catch, and here's where I'll disagree with Woodard. This particular vision of America that Sims is articulating here was not unique to the South. It was, the, it was the Free Soil Party, later the Republican Party, that said, we want the, the territories for free white men. That's the whole platform of the 1856 Republican Party. It was called white manism. This is what John Charles Fremont was running on. Free soil, free labor, free men, Fremont, free speech, Fremont and victory. I mean, this is what it was. And you put white in front of even Eric Foner points this out. So S- Sims is not unique here. This is where Woodard, it's, it's, I mean, again, he's a, he's a Mainer writing, and the South is always the problem. If it wasn't for the South, we got these good Northerners out there saying, we need to live like this. America's got to be like this. But the South is gumming up the works all the time. It's those people in the Deep South in the Chesapeake region. Slavery was, in, was endorsed by God, declared the leading light of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederacy. Joseph Ruggles Wilson in 1861. I, I think that's a little stretch that Joseph Ruggles Wilson was the leading light of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederacy. I mean, you had some pretty important Southern theologians besides Wilson. Now, of course, he's going to tie this in because this is Woodrow Wilson's father. That's the leading light of the Confederacy. Church. Okay. A little stretch there, but that's okay. And again, these ideas weren't new. 1701, you have John Saffin in Massachusetts saying the exact same thing. Saying the exact same thing. So, where is the South in all this that's unique? It's not unique. They're simply stating what Americans, for at this point, Nearly 150 years have been, 160 years have been saying. It was one of many Anglo-Saxon supremacist ideas he imbued on his loyal son, Woodrow. The younger Wilson spent the 1880s and 90s writing histories disparaging the racial fitness of black people and Catholic immigrants. On becoming president in 1913, Wilson segregated the federal government. That is true. He screened The Birth of a Nation at the White House, a film that he quoted his own history writings to celebrate the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror during Reconstruction. Uh, again, I've already done, I've talked about, uh, in the, I think it was in the Abbeville Institute podcast, uh, the, uh, the most recent study of the Klan, which points to the North as kind of a, 
they built this thing up more than it was through newspapers, newspaper accounts. It's really interesting. Uh, this is a, a, a leftist writer. She, or, essentially, she's arguing the Klan was almost a figment of people's imagination. Now, it didn't mean it didn't exist and there wasn't violence and these things happened. Of course, you can't say any of that. But the size and scope and depth of the Klan is something that I, she's saying northern papers essentially exaggerated. Interesting argument. I guess Woodard hasn't read that book. Also, again, he doesn't understand how long-standing these particular ideas were in the United States. And there were even Americans who bristled at this idea of Jefferson's famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, right after it was written. Not, in, not just in 1861. Sims, the Wilsons, and Birth of a Nation producer D.W. Griffith offered a vision of a Heronvolk democracy. If you don't know what that is, it's a racially supremacist democracy. It's, a, it's an idea that democracy is for one people only. And that race is the unifying theme so he's saying these Southerners, Sims, Wilsons, Southerners created this idea of a heron-voke democracy. It didn't, if it wasn't for them, that wouldn't have been the case in the North. Southerners are so powerful that they've determined what Northern viewpoints are going to be of government, except that it doesn't hold water because the North was just as racist as the South. In fact, if you read, uh, there's a book by Jennifer Weber titled Copperhead. She points this out. There were part of the book is some of the book is awful, but she points out that the northern press often lambasted the South for being a, a society of miscegenation, while the North was purely white. There was a racial element to selling the Republican Party in the North because the Democrats were around all these people of different races. And certainly you had a bunch of mulattoes running around the South. Well, what does that mean? That means that this is going on. Sims, the Wilsons, and Birth of Nation, I said that. Uh, Confederate monuments popped up across former Confederate and Union territory alike. Why? Because of this hair invoked democracy that became the model, he says, for the United States in the 19-teens and 20s. It wasn't just Confederate monuments that popped up. It was also Union monuments who did the exact same thing. I just The real reason for Union monuments. Jim Crow laws enacted an apartheid system in southern and border states. No, this came out of the north. The first states to have Jim Crow laws were in the north. Read C. Van Woodward, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Directly inspired by the 1915 debut of the Birth of a Nation, the second clan was established to restore true Americanism by intimidating, assaulting, or killing a wide range of non-Anglo-Saxons. It grew to a million members by 1921 and possibly as many as five million by 1925. Among them, Future leaders from governors to senators to big city mayors, in addition to at least one Supreme Court justice, Hugo Black. Notice he doesn't mention here any Northerners in this, but it was an in, a man from Indiana that ran this Klan. But, I mean, that's... But, this is all the South's fault. It's all the South's fault that we have this. The Immigration Act of 1924 established racial and ethnic quotas devised to maintain Anglo-Saxon numerical and cultural supremacy. Well, certainly there was a fear of non-Western European peoples flooding into the United States. That began in the 1880s, and it really picked up steam in 19, 1924. I mean, you had millions of people arriving just before the Immigration Act. And then you had a very short period of time, the 1920s into the 40s, where hardly anybody showed up to the United States. 
Well, that's why you certainly had a much more Lincolnian nationalism during that period of time. This ethno-nationalist vision of our country was dethroned in the 1960s, but it remains with us, resurgent today. Its strength can, can't be underestimated. Sims' vision is as old as American as Bancroft's. Sims' vision is as old and as American, I'm sorry, as Bancroft's. And it was the dominant paradigm in this country for nearly many decades. It will not just slink off in the night. It must be smothered by a more compelling alternative. Well, I would say that uh, there was there you couldn't find many Americans in 1830 that didn't share William Gilmore Sims' view on race, North and South. But the real thing is, Sims also wrote a lot about how he didn't like Yankees. You see, Yankees were considered a race. Bancroft was a Yankee. That was a race of people. It wasn't based on skin color. It was a race of people, and Southerners saw it that way. So it had little to do with race in that way, but more to do with the way you viewed the world. The civic nationalist story of America that Bancroft envisioned still has the potential to unify the country. It does. Its essential covenant is, is to ensure freedom and equality of opportunity for everyone. Well, what does that mean? What is equality of opportunity? Does that mean that everyone gets the same income? Everyone gets the same house? Everyone gets the same clothing? Everyone gets the same... I mean, what does that mean? Equality of opportunity for African Americans and Native Americans and inheritors of the legacy of slavery and genocide to be sure, but also for Americans with ancestors from Asia and Latin America, Indian, China, Poland, France, and Ireland. Yeah, because we know there's a lot of anti-Irish sentiment in the United States now. I mean, certainly. He has to throw that because it's just about these people. For rural and urban people, evangelicals, Jews, Muslims, and atheists, men, women, non-binary people, and most certainly children. <laughs> right, because children can decide all kinds of things for themselves. They're eight years old now, they can do all kinds of things. You see, this is where he's saying, look, this is, this is a unifying thing. The proposition nation unifies all these people together. But if you look at Bank, and he's talking about Bancroft, and saying that there's going to be a dominant position, and that is going to be the Anglo-American tradition, even though Bancroft, well, we had all these influences and it made America great, but Frederick Douglass wasn't saying that. Frederick Douglass wasn't saying, you know what, we had uh, we had all these great non-Western influences in America. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying there's a dominant position. It's ours, and people have to accept that and assimilate. But that's not what all this list is here. That's not what these people really want to do in America now. We don't have that type of assimilation anymore in America. Arthur Schlesinger, the leftist historian, pointed this out in his Disuniting of America. I mean, this is a it's interesting. You know, he published a book like that back in the 90s. It's a coalition for Americans, a people defined by this quest, tasked by the preamble of the Constitution to promote the common good and individual liberty across generations. Over the past century, cultural, judicial, and demographic changes have strengthened its hand, ending white Christian control over the electorate in, in all the large states, not a few of the small ones, and the Federation as a whole. I mean, he's saying, again, this is, this is I mean, almost you know, bipolar here. On the one hand, we have Douglas saying everyone's going to unify under this, and now he's saying, no, 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 this is bad. We're going to we're going to break all this apart. You can't have a nation joined by a, simply a belief, and people are going to have liberty, or all people are are created equal, or whatever it is. You can't have a nation like that because a nation requires a common set 
of core values, beliefs, language, religion. You can't do it because you're going to create a tremendous amount of conflict. And at the end of the day, if you look at this list, that's not what the left is trying to do. They're trying to ensure that there's no dissent from their position. And they're going to do it by silencing people. That's not real, not real uh, liberty. It's not an off-the-shelf product, however. It's biggest failings, arrogance, messianic hubris, a self-regard so uh, bright as to build one blind to one to shortcomings, stem from the Puritan legacy Bancroft was also steeped in. The Puritans thought they had been chosen by God to build a new Zion. Bancroft believed the product of their mission was the United States and that it was destined to spread its ideals across the continent and the world. This notion of American exceptionalism, that the U.S. can walk on water when other nations cannot, needs to be jettisoned and replaced by the humility that comes with, a more, with being mere mortals, able to recognize the failures of our past and the fragility of our present and future. It's a task that will take a generation, but could bring Americans together again, from one shining sea to the other. Yeah, I mean, so what we're going to do is we're going to unify around nothing. There, there's nothing here. This is the biggest piece of nothing burger I've ever seen. You, if you want to follow Bancroft, then you got to have a neoconservative future. And what he's trying to do is saying, Bancroft is great, but he's a neoconservative. You can't have that. So we got to have some type of leftist spin on this stuff. Sims in the South was distorting everything, of course, which is the Republicans were doing the exact same thing. This is where all this stuff is just so crazy. All right. So that's the piece. It's a it's silly in a lot of ways, but I think it's important that we're talking about nationalism here in 2021 as something that, a, a civic nationalism. Remember, I talked about civic puritanism. This is civic nationalism, something that's so important moving forward. All right. Went a little long on this one. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClain Show. I'll see you next time on the next one. See you then.